Here's a difficult question for you. How much is an idea worth? Just about every guest we've had here on the show would argue that an idea alone, something without any real traction, users paying customers, is worth nothing, or less than nothing, and that it's in the execution, the act of bringing your idea to life in a way that it genuinely helps your customers that creates real value. A business that is worth something, one that investors will want to back. Today's guest, David Sanderson, the ex-Facebook employee that launched the streaming aggregation app Real Good, embodies this philosophy of taking action and creating value before expecting anyone to back your idea. I had lunch with this guy. I didn't really know who he was. I didn't even know anything about pitching or you know everything that I know now. Like I knew none of it back then. And so anyway, I had lunch with this guy and I was just kind of, you know, excited about this idea. And we talked a bit about Facebook. And at the end of it, he just said, Hey, like, I've already heard about your reputation from Facebook. Like I already know who you are. Um, you came recommended from Kim, my mentor. Um, and like, you've already kind of got the outlines of this idea. I'd like to fund this. Like, I'd like to get this, get this going with you. Um, and so he offered a million dollars, uh, to, leave Facebook and start, um, start the company. But here's the thing. By this point in time, David already had a minimum viable product. He had users that were already engaging with his app. And on top of that, David had a strong reputation at Facebook, a highly respected company, for quickly building and launching new products that performed well. This reputation is what helped him get a meeting with the investor that signed over that first million dollar check. David didn't allow the excuse of not having enough money hold him back from making progress on his idea. He did what he could on a tight budget in the free time around his day job to get traction and create positive growth in terms of users of his app. Then all that hard work paid off tenfold for David. That first investor came to him. And after he had the funding to really focus on building out the business, David made the leap to working full-time on Real Good. The rest, as they say, is history. Welcome to the Side Hustle Project, a podcast where we explore the nitty-gritty details behind what it takes to start and grow a profitable side hustle. I'm your host, Ryan Robinson. In this podcast, I'm bringing you interviews with entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, CEOs, investors, and people just like you who are building and profiting from interesting side hustles. In today's episode, we're talking to David Sanderson, the founder of Real Good. That's spelled R-E-E-L, good. Real Good is an app that allows you to connect all of your different streaming platforms, think Netflix, Hulu, HBO, Showtime, into one single app on your computer and soon your mobile devices so that you can stream everything in just one place. Originally from Canada, David has always been an entrepreneur at heart, from the traditional lemonade stand to tinkering with radios and building little projects in his free time. David eventually landed a job here at Facebook in Silicon Valley, where he led one of the company's biggest initiatives to launch Facebook's self-serve ad platform, a feature that now brings in a substantial portion of the company's revenue. All the while, David was slowly making progress with his idea for real good on the side of his work at Facebook, even hiring a sizable team of employees to get more traction. And eventually, after landing his first million-dollar investment over lunch, David made the leap to working full-time on real good. In this episode, we're talking about how David made that difficult decision to leave a comfortable, secure job at Facebook to take his side hustle full time. We're covering how David and his team got early traction with their idea and convinced venture capitalists to come on board and fund the future of the company. 
We dive into the strategies David and his team have employed to get press features on sites like TechCrunch, Mashable, The Next Web, and more. As always, you can find everything we mentioned in today's episode in the show notes at ryrob.com slash podcast. That's spelled R-Y-R-O-B dot com slash podcast. Let's get into today's interview with David Sanderson from Real Good. David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. So let's start with my favorite warm-up question. What book are you reading right now or what has been your favorite recently? Oof, that's a good question because I'm in the middle of a, a book that I'm super obsessed with. Um, and uh, it's, uh, what is it called? It's called American... Oh, what is the name? Um, American Kingpin. Uh, and it's the story. It's by the guy that wrote the book, um, Hatching Twitter. Uh, and, but this one, it's about the guy that founded Silk Road, uh, that like illegal oh, wow. site where you could buy it. Yeah. And it is fascinating. It's basically like the real life story of Walter White um, from Breaking <laughs> is Bad. It, written, it is it's crazy. Is it written with interviews of him or is it sort of he, just observing? This, um, well, so the guy that wrote it is a New York times, I think he was a New York times author. And so he like, he clearly did his research every which way to Sunday. Cause like he, he tells it kind of as a story, but the details he has, like he so clearly has like every conversation thread. He's interviewed the guy's girlfriend. I think he's probably interviewed the guy himself. Um, and it tells the story from both sides. So it tells it from this, you know, he, I think he was like a 26 year old like guy just living in San Francisco, just like a founder, just kind of like, you know, every, like myself and everyone else do here, but he was running this huge thing. And then it also tells the uh, side of the FBI agents and like the DEA. So each chapter like alternates and you're kind of seeing the story unfold as there's this kind of cat and mouse scene going on. It's a seriously fascinating story, right? Like I've, I've watched a few things about it, but it sounds like the book is a, a nice deep dive. Yeah, so I, I highly recommend that. And it's it's even interesting just hearing it, despite the fact it's this crazy, you know, $100 million, I think a year in like sales, um, illegal empire, you know, he's dealing with like server issues and his engineers, it's like all the kind of, you know, the same things that any tech company is dealing with, because at the end of the day, it was a tech company. All right. So David, um, I want to go straight back to the beginning with you. Where are you from sure. originally? Uh, I'm originally from Vancouver, Canada. All right. And how did you make your way to the Bay Area then? Yeah, it's a bit of a long story. I'll try to make it. I'll try to give the Coles Notes version of it. But um, I was working as an accountant in Vancouver and I was always into tech. Like it just some of the you know cliche stories. I would take my computer apart. I built a radio on a weekend. Like I just was just into how stuff worked and was really into computers. But I never thought it could be a career path or a job just because they're really, especially when I was there, there really wasn't any tech scene in Vancouver. Um, and I tell people like, I think if you ask the average person, how was Facebook run in Vancouver? They'd say, Oh, just Mark Zuckerberg sits at his computer in his apartment and like pushes code. Like they don't understand <laughs> that there's a giant tech company, you know, hundreds of engineers or thousands, I guess. Um, so anyway, so I was doing that. And then I actually met my now wife at a wedding up in Vancouver um, and sh shortly after we started dating, she started working at Google, um, and she was living in California. And so I came down to visit her and I was just like, wait, this is way cooler than what I'm doing. Um, and anyway, through, through a woman that she worked with, who's turned into, she was her mentor and she's become my mentor over the years. That woman convinced me one day, she was just like, Hey, you should just leave everything behind in Vancouver and move down and work at like Facebook or Google. 
Sure. How does that happen? Um, so she, uh, she introduced me, like she knew a bit of my background, introduced me to some people. I did all the interviews. Um, and I ended up getting offers from both, but being a Canadian citizen, the visa was a little tricky. So I had an offer from Google and they said, okay, you can start in 10 months when, you know, we have the visa ready. Uh, whereas Facebook said, Hey, like you could start now. The caveat is you have to start in Ireland. Um, <laughs> so that's a I big actually, caveat. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty big caveat. And they're like, by the way, can you fly out tomorrow morning to go interview for this specific team out there? So I did that. It was the fastest turnaround. Anyway, um, I ended up joining. Uh, I ended up joining that team uh, in Ireland, and it actually worked out well because my wife had joined Facebook. Um, she had been working there for a year before that, and uh, so we actually went out and lived in Europe for a year and a half. And then, basically, the projects I was working on, they were kind of all based with teams out in San Francisco. So, I ended up moving back out here. Wow. Yeah, lots yeah. of twists and turns on that journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very circuitous way to, to end up here. So have you had any side hustles, projects, or businesses that you worked on kind of, you know, leading up to your time working at Facebook, like maybe during college or beforehand? Um, yeah, I mean, again, these I feel like these are somewhat of the cliche stories of, of any entrepreneur, sure. but like had the lemonade stand when I was a kid, um, when I you know, was getting to the point where I needed to start applying to colleges. My parents were basically like, well, good luck. And I was like, oh, but they cost money. Like, I don't have any money. And they're like, that's your problem now. You're finished high school. You're on your own. And I was like, okay. So I, that day I was, I went, I think I had like $20. Um, like that's all it, that's all I had. So I went to Safeway and I bought a bunch of donuts. Um, and then I took them to school the next day and sold them for like $3 a pop. Um, and then took that money, went back to Safeway the next day, you know, I'd like $50 and just, I did that over a few months and, uh, you know, made a few thousand dollars paid for all my college applications. Um, and then, and then, uh, stopped that. Uh, and then, um, when I was, when I was working as an accountant, uh, it wasn't a side hustle, but kind of in the company, I thought what we were doing was really repetitive and boring. I was like, a computer can obviously do this. So mm-hmm. I wrote a bunch of macros that just automated all my work. Uh, but then that got really boring because I kind of was hungry for more work, but they were like, this is, this is just what you need to do. But I would just kind of basically come in in the morning, make my coffee, turn on the macros, check stuff, and I'd be done in an hour. And then we'd just be really <laughs> bored the rest of the day. That's funny you mentioned that specifically, because that is that has been a common theme with several of the people I've interviewed. Like even Noah Kagan specifically was yeah. like his first job at IBM. Like he basically just was kind of an Excel jockey and he created a ton of macros and would just... Yeah press play when he walked into work and, you know, do nothing or work on other projects or something. Yeah. I remember I watched a a lot of YouTube videos then because I was just (laughs) so, so bored and they wouldn't give me, I wrote, I wrote, then wrote a manual on how to do macros because I was trying to get other people at the company to do it. Oh Um, my God. And then when that was done, I was just so bored. But, uh, anyway, um, and then even on the side of that, that's when actually I kind of, I started to come up with the idea for, what is now real good, the company that I I founded. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was, it was just a very early stage of an idea, just kind of on the evenings I was trying to learn how to make a website. Again, I had no experience in this. 
but was just trying to learn any code that I could to try to get a bit of a framework um, of that going. But then, then shortly after that is when I started at Facebook and I kind of put it to the side because gotcha. obviously that became, that became a bit all consuming for the first few years. What year did you sort of come up with this idea for Real Good and how did that come about? I think so. I mean, the idea for Real Good's kind of evolved into what it is now. Um, it was probably, I'd say, 2011 when I kind of had the first inklings of the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was before streaming had really taken off. I think Netflix was sort of in its, its earlier days, especially at least in Canada. Like watching on demand wasn't so much of a thing. Uh, so at the time though, it was, I was just frustrated where I would want to, you know, be Friday night and I'd want to watch a movie, but I would have no idea what to watch. And like, there wasn't really any good ways to browse or figure out what to watch. And I would, there was a frustration of, I knew I'd seen trailers for movies I'd wanted to see, but I had like, I, when I actually sat down to watch something, I couldn't remember any of those. So I just watched something crappy. So I started, I built just a very basic, basic website that me and my friends got on. And it was just a way to keep track, like just basically keep a list of movies you wanted to see. And then you could see your friends lists. Um, so you could see what they liked and what, what, uh, like what they didn't like. And so, yeah, like I said, it was just a very small, very simple website. That's funny to look back at now. Um, and then, like I said, like, Oh, just, just sort of my friends using it and then put it to the side. Mm-hmm. Once face the Facebook ball got rolling. So right. So so once you take the job at Facebook, um, you you eventually land at their what is it, Palo Alto office? Uh yes. It was well their I'm trying to think. Their Menlo Park office. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And My what wife were you was doing for the, them there. Palo Alto one. Um so I actually started in the ad operations team which was basically there were when advertisers like Coke or perhaps any of the big ones were advertising on Facebook. Um, we, they would, it was, it's funny for a tech company, how manual was at the time, but basically they would book their ad spend through a contract. And then my team was a team that would then take that contract and work with Nike to actually get like, okay, what do you want the ads to look like? What do you want them to say? When do you want them to run? What is the targeting? All that stuff and manually input all of that. Um, and so somewhat similar to um, what I did when I was an accountant, I had the same thing where I was like, this is insane. Like, this is just literally moving information from one place to another place. Um, and there were also like, there were things like where the contracts, if they had certain restrictions on it in terms of dates or targeting, we then had to manually make sure we enforced that in the ad campaign. So if they later said, oh, you know what, we want to change our targeting, we'd have to say, oh, no, you need a new contract. So there was all this all these steps and it would take like a week from when they actually said they wanted to advertise to when they'd actually get an ad live. So I did uh, a hackathon one night, stayed up till like 4am, got a couple engineers interested in building uh, basically a self-serve interface uh, for the advertisers. So they could just put in all this information themselves and it'd be really easy for them. And then on our end, we would just press a button and it would like connect to our basically ad platform and just mm-hmm. put all of that live without us having to do anything. Um, and uh, luckily that took off because um, we had teams around the world doing this and all of a sudden they didn't really need to do it. So uh, when that kind of exploded, the higher ups at Facebook were just like, Hey, that was cool. Like what, what do you want to build next? Write your own job description. I was like, Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, cool. So you kind um, of led the charge on what eventually turned into their self-serve ad platform. 
Yeah, it was it was definitely wow. a part of that. They had they had some of the early like really basic self serve serve ads for like some of the really cheap just like display type ads. Sure. Um, but this was yeah, this was the beginning of the kind of self serve that you see now. My gosh, that's a huge portion of their revenue. Yeah, I mean that that company can drill into any part of the ground and money's pouring out. <laughs> <laughs> So would you say there are any like particular lessons, strategies, principles you learned from your time at Facebook that you're now applying to your company real good? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a lot. And I find almost every week, almost like a new thing kind of unlocks for me in the sense I didn't realize I was learning it. Um, but, you know, I'll be in a situation where I'll be like, oh, well, I know how to handle this or I know what to do. Like, thanks to sort of the boot camp that was Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, um, I mean, I think especially at a high level, the thing I noticed the most is they just did such a good job with their company culture. Um, and I had managers and higher ups that, like I said, you know, were like write your own job description. They gave me a lot of freedom and a lot of uh, trust. And I definitely carried that over with the team. And I think that that's, really is like lends itself to a lot more productivity, new ideas, um, and just like team morale mm -hmm. than sort of the nitty gritty, like staying, I like guess, especially more in they say the accounting world where it's like you follow procedures, you do as you're told. Um, I've found that to be extremely, extremely helpful, uh, when, when leading this new company. So you mentioned your team. Have you been able to use your experience at Facebook to get people interested in working with you or even like maybe ex-Facebook employees? Um, if you found any sort of like partners, relationships, even investors through your time at Facebook? Um, yeah. So unfortunately, I mean, it makes sense for Facebook, but you can't hire away any and well, anyone from Facebook. Like there's a clause in your contract where you can't hire people away for a year right. or two after you've worked there. So unfortunately I couldn't hire any of my friends, which was obviously a bit frustrating because they were excited about it and we already knew each other. But I mean, that said, I learned everything I know about product management from my time at Facebook. Like there were amazing mentors I had there by just doing it for, you know, a bit under four years learned. And the other thing is when I, in the earlier days of it, um, ads weren't really one of uh, Zuckerberg's focuses. He was really focused on the consumer product. So if you worked in ads, it was kind of green pastures where you could kind of do whatever you wanted. But the problem was there was very limited engineering resources put towards, towards ads. So I think it definitely taught me to be very scrappy and um, learn prioritization, like really aggressive prioritization because we'd have such limited engineering resources to actually make things happen. Um, so I think that's lend that lent itself well to now, obviously a startup where you're, also resource constrained um, and you can only do so many things and you have to be really, really careful about that and not let yourself get distracted or let scope creep, um, you know, make its way in. So at what point did you feel like you had to jump over to working on real good full time? Was it kind of like some sort of metric you were tracking or was it more of a gut feel? Yeah, I would say it was, it was a bit of a combo of things. Um, one was, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like I was raised in a bed and breakfast with my family, which was like when my, when my parents split up, my mom had this house and she obviously didn't have that extra income and she needed to figure out a way to, you know, close that gap. So she thought, okay, I'll open a bed and breakfast. And that's what I was raised in. And I always really liked that and like the entrepreneurial spirit. So I knew I wanted to do it. Um, and the other thing was, 
like with my time at Facebook, um, it had been really fun and really challenging. And, but you know, over the years it did grow into a bigger company, uh, with a lot more employees and you start, you know, start, things start to become, everyone starts to become sort of a bit of a smaller cog in the system. Um, I also kind of had gotten to a point that I wanted to, like before I had to really fight for resources and, uh, you know, constantly be scrappy. But by the time I left, we had actually a pretty big team. We had you know, we had a team of engineers, we had product managers, we had designers, all this stuff that we kind of just build whatever we wanted. So almost a bit of the challenge was gone there. So I felt like I'd kind of learned as much as I could from Facebook and was extremely grateful for it. But that was a bit of a signal to me of like, okay, it's time to move on to the next thing. Um, and tying into the, to the entrepreneurial spirit, I also, um, you know, I'd been married, um, I think, I don't know, a year or two at that point. And I knew we wanted kids and I thought I wanted to kind of do this real good thing. What better time now? Like I've got a couple of years here where I can throw caution to the wind um, mm-hmm. and uh, go do, go do the startup, take this risk. But the thing that really pushed it, and actually we have a kid coming in a few months now. So now I have a kid in the middle of a chaotic startup, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, what really pushed it over the edge was actually my, the mentor, the one that originally had me, come down to California, I was just having dinner with her one night and she said to me, she's like, David, you've been talking about this idea for like four years now. I have to listen to you talk about this all the time. You've launched all these big products at Facebook. Like, what are you doing? Just go, go and do this. There's no time like the present. So she said, promise me one thing, like you'll go have lunch with my friend. And I was like, sure. So, um, I had lunch with this guy. I didn't really know who he was. I didn't even know anything about pitching or, you know, everything that I know now. Like I knew none of it back then. And so anyway, I had lunch with this guy and I was just kind of, you know, excited about this idea. And we talked a bit about Facebook. And at the end of it, he just said, Hey, like I've already heard about your reputation from Facebook. Like I already know who you are. Um, you came recommended from Kim, my mentor. Um, and like, you've already kind of got the outlines of this idea. I'd like to fund this. Like I'd like to get this, get this going with you. Um, and so he offered a million dollars, uh, to leave Facebook and start, um, start the company. So I'd say that's pretty um, good incentive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and that was like, it's like, what are you going to say? Are you going to say no to that? Like, so that was pretty, a pretty good kick in the butt from life being like, this is, this is the time to go do this. Mm-hmm. So what do you um, feel anyway, like was kind of like the driver of him wanting to make that offer and be like kind of your first big investor? I think it was a confluence of things. It was those things that I said, like he, I guess he'd already heard about my products and heard about me from my time at Facebook. Like the Valley's pretty small as you probably know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like I said, coming recommended from his friend, um, showing that I had the basics of like the concept for the, it wasn't just an idea. I was like, you know, I had, I had ideas about, or like, you know, basic outlines of what I thought the product would actually be. Um, and I think at the, part of it was luck as with so much of running a startup or any company, um, the timing was extremely good. Like the market was at its peak. And I think it was at a time where he even kind of said this, he was just like, there's so much money being poured in right now. He's like, you could go on any corner and raise money. And I think in his mind it was, well, if I don't grab this guy right now, he's just going to, you know, anyone else, the next person he talks to is going to grab him. So I better hop in now. Yeah, the FOMO um, seems like a very yeah. real part of the investing in Silicon Valley. 
Yes. And this was like, this was about two years ago. Like I said, when things were just at their absolute, like it was very shortly after that where things dipped down in a very big way. Um, Mm -hmm. But this, I was just lucky to catch it right at the peak. Have you guys taken on any more funding since then? We have. Yeah. A few months back, um, we raised three and a half million from, um, it was led by August Capital and then a few other uh, investors that basically have been good to us that we wanted to get in the mix. Gotcha. How, how was that round different than your first sort of, you know, lunch, here's a million dollars? <laughs> yeah. Um, so with, I mean, obviously that lunch, that was one lunch and done. So it was, it was, mm-hmm. it was very fast and I didn't even know what was going on. With the second one, obviously, we talked to a bunch of different funds um, and, you know, had to be conscious about the fund that we picked. Luckily, we ended up with August, who's been absolutely amazing. Um, we got uh, they one of their other investors or one of the other investments is uh, this company called Samba TV. And the founder of that before that was the founder of BitTorrent. And he just joined our board. So like thanks to them, we've got this amazing guy in the mix. Um, but uh yeah, I mean, the, the obvious difference, too, is just in the different stages of investing. With the first one, it's kind of you got the basics of an idea. And if they think you can pull it off, that's that's what you're going for at that stage. And then in this more recent stage that we did, obviously, you have to show some traction. Like they, they want to invest in basically something that's working and expanding that out. So the Real Good app, to me, feels kind of like an obvious direction that Apple will want to move in. And I guess, you know, they're already kind of doing it in a small way with Apple TV. Um, is Apple part of what you would view as a potential exit strategy or do you have like other plans in mind with the company? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what Apple's plans are, but I do know like we, we are focusing on the website, like realgood.com. Um, but we did have an Apple TV app, uh, that we built in just a week as kind of a proof of concept before uh, we did the website because it's just a lot faster to develop on, on Apple TV. Mm-hmm. So we built that and then a couple months and we had our beta of our website out. And then a couple months later, Apple announced their TV app and that was a tough day for the team. Like we watched that all together and we were just like, great, it looks identical <laughs> to what we have and it's Apple doing it. Um, so that was a scary day for us, but it actually turned out to be one of the best things that happened to us. Um, I mean, a couple of things. One, they didn't have Netflix or Amazon Prime, which obviously the two biggest players in the space, it makes it hard to make a, if you're making a streaming aggregator, it's, it, I don't know how much value it lends if you don't have kind of the basics. But um, there was a lot of press around that. And uh, like Mashable did a piece uh, just about the Apple TV and we didn't know this was happening, but at the end of the piece, they just said real good is the app that Apple wishes they built. Um, and there was other press around it. And I think that actually was around when we were raising. And I think that helped because I think earlier on when we weren't quite raising, but you know, I talked to some investors here and there, they would, there would be this question like, Oh, is this really a thing? Like, do people really want all their streaming sources in one place? Um, and I'd have to convince them, but all of a sudden now the biggest company in the world is making a play in this space. It very, it becomes clear, like this is a thing and there's a play and there will be a winner in this space. And luckily we were ahead of everyone else. Um, so it was one of those like darkest days to actually one of the, one of the best things for us. So you mentioned the Mashable, um, article. So you guys have actually done a really good job of drumming up press over the past couple of years, you know, like TechCrunch, Mashable, NextWeb. What would be your advice to listeners here today that want to get their projects featured on sites like those? 
Um, well, okay. First off, apologies to every PR company out there, but I'm vehemently against PR companies. Um, <laughs> we have burnt money on them in the past. Uh, and like, even like we, I was already wary of them. And then there was a PR company we went with and like, they had the story of they were different and they were Silicon Valley and they did stuff in a more tech and data driven way. And I was like, okay, maybe they're going to do it differently than all the other ones I've heard. Long story short, they didn't. Um, and even despite my kind of Canadian kindness, I, I was so frustrated with them by the time we finished our contract because we were locked in and they weren't getting us anything. I just emailed them and said, Hey, you know, if I had, if I had lit that $30,000 on fire, I would have gotten more press than what I got from you guys. Um, <laughs> So I was really impressed. So everything we've gotten has been from Catherine um, on our team. And uh, she, she's actually my wife as well. Uh, she's, she's an ex-Google, Facebook, and Twitter. So um, she's one of those lucky people that if she wasn't my wife, we wouldn't be able to hire her. Um, mm-hmm. And she, she's been the one that's gotten us all of that. I don't really understand exactly how she does it. Um, but like I said, every piece of press we've gotten is being from doing it in-house. Right. And that was going to be my next question was, is, does she do like cold outreach? Does she have, you know, established relationships already? Maybe I'll just shoot her sure. a few questions to include in the show notes if, if you don't have a full picture of that yourself. Yeah, I'll give you sort of what I know from my side. Um, I mean, I told her it's it's... I'm glad that she does it because I'm more on the product side of things and, and, you know, ads and business where there's sort of a direct relationship between the effort you put in and and what you get out. Whereas it seems from the work I see her do with the PR, there's definitely, it's not a linear relationship. Um, She'll do a bunch and sometimes get nothing. And then sometimes she'll do a tiny bit of things here or there. And all of a sudden, you know, we've got on fast and company or something like it's, it's definitely not linear, but, um, I think so. She does a mix. I know she's done some Harrow and uh, the for those that don't know, it's help a reporter out. It's basically emails where reporters are looking for data or people to talk to about a piece that they're doing. Um, so she'll do that and she'll um, reach out to people on that. And then I think beyond that, she researches people that are talking about stuff that we're like in, you know in our space, um, and she'll reach out to them. And I think with help. Some it's cold emails, some it's over the, over the years, she's built a relationship with these people and is able to reach out to them um, and have a bit more of a back and forth as opposed to, so it's not so much a one and done, like some it's just a cold pitch. Some they'll be like, ah, I don't think this is that interesting. I don't want to write about it. Here are, my, here are my concerns or something. And then she can respond and talk to them. And then a lot of times that actually ends up in a piece. All right. So I want to transition over to some of my frequently asked questions, which are intentionally designed to be short on my end. Your responses do not need to be equally so. (laughs) Okay. What's your number one piece of advice to someone listening today who wants to start working on a side project, but you know, maybe they're not confident about their idea. Maybe they're not sure if it's the right idea. Maybe they feel like they don't have enough experience. What would you advise them to do? Um, two things. One, just do it now. Like, don't wait. There's not going to be a better time. If you're thinking about it now and you have a few minutes of free time, like it's just, it, it's, I feel almost like having a kid. There's never a good time. It's never easier. Um, so I'd say first off, just, just start it, start, start heading in the right direction. Um, I know there's, there's this analogy of like swinging from vines. If you're trying to get from one to the other, you don't always go straight for it, but you just sort of start swinging in that direction. You might swing to the right, swing to the left, but just start heading that way. 
Um, and the other thing is, uh, fail, like the old adage of fail fast. Um, just start trying these things out. Some of your ideas will be right. Some will be wrong. You want to invest as little amount of time and resources on the things that are wrong. So by getting the simplest versions out of any of your ideas or features and getting to try them, um, you're going to save yourself a lot of time and a lot of money. And I think that can also make the difference um, down the road for your company, just because obviously the clock is ticking. If you, especially if you're a funded startup, the clock is constantly ticking and you need to find the things that work as fast as possible. So back when you were working on real good, um, on the side of your full-time job at Facebook, do you feel like there were any sort of particular strategies or systems you use that allowed you to create the time to work on real good around your day job? Um, no. And I guess like, it wasn't, it wasn't easy because I was working really hard at Facebook. I really enjoyed it when I was there. Um, it was just, I think it was just almost passion driven, like passion giving, giving the energy to sit down at the computer at the end of the day. Um, you know, after, after working a 10, 12 hour day at Facebook, um, and I was just really excited about it. And it was more fun to do that than to watch TV or whatever else. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it, I think it's sort of like working out or something. You just have to carve out that time every day and just maybe give yourself two hours, maybe every night, um, where you just focus on that. And for me, it was just a lot of just like mocking it down on paper and writing out ideas, um, that sort of thing. Have you had any particular strategies, tactics, ideas that you've tested, um, ultimately end in failure? Oh, for sure. Um, God, I'm trying to think. Uh, I mean, I think there's, especially from the product side of things, like we have, there's things that I've felt confident about that we've tested and they didn't really pick or also they didn't, they didn't really take in the end. Um, or there's things where uh, you launch something and you kind of think this will be your audience. And then it turns out, okay, it's slightly different than what you'd expect in terms of things that have just straight strategies that have failed. It's honestly hard to just pick one because I feel we're just, it's, it's so fast where you're just trying one strategy and you quickly try to get a sense of it's not working. And then you just move on to the next one that I wouldn't say any one really stands out. Yeah. It's kind of like a, a progression basically. Yeah. I feel like every day I'm probably failing, you know, three out of the eight things I do didn't quite work out, but then you're hoping the other five do. <laughs> Cause it's just, you're just constantly making decisions and you have to make some decision. And it's just, it's better, I think to make a decision than not make a decision because you're concerned it's the wrong one. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, David, all right. So this is my last question for you. Sure. Um, what's been the best investment you've ever made in the context of growing your business? And this could be in the form of time, money, online tools, products, services, or otherwise. Best investment. Um, I think it would go back to what we were talking about before in terms of what have had, what's had the biggest impact for our, our uh, company. It's been actually the PR and doing that in-house. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us here today. Can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and Real Good and everything you're up to? Uh, yes. Yeah. So uh, the basics of Real Good, it's a uh, 
for lack of a better word, streaming source aggregator. It's basically a one one interface where you can watch Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Showtime, HBO, you name it. So you don't have to flip between your apps every night. You can track all your shows, um, browse everything that you have access to and play it all straight from Real Good. Um, and the website is realgood.com. And we have an iPhone app uh, coming out soon. Awesome. David, thank you yeah. so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of the Side Hustle Project, I would love your support. Head on over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a rating. And as always, you can catch every episode of the Side Hustle Project on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.